Acts 6, 8 through 15, concerning Stephen and his ministry, the very beginning portion of what took place with Stephen. Let us hear now the living and abiding word of God. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord now in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for your word today. And we know that it is by your word that we live. We live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so feed us and teach us and equip us uh, through our time in the word. And that you, Lord, would be magnified and glorified as we hear and receive your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we survey the pages of human history, since Christ ascended to God's right hand, there is only one explanation for the remarkable progress of the gospel all around the world, and that explanation is the supernatural power of God. We've seen throughout Acts that Acts teaches us that God empowers his people to bear witness, and even to bear witness in the context of very fierce opposition. The church advances through conflict and difficulty, not advancing problem-free at all. Uh, There's conflict all throughout Acts. There's riots, and there's killings, and there's imprisonments, and this is how the Lord Jesus advances his church in a hostile world that is opposed to him. And I was thinking about the power of Stephen and the power of these early Christians in Acts and thinking about how did they do these things? What is the explanation for a man like Stephen and what he did in this passage and in the chapter that follows? Well, of course, the explanation is, is the Holy Spirit at work within Stephen and within God's people. And it reminded me of what John Knox said about the Scottish Reformation when he was asked to give an explanation of how was it that this Reformation, this remarkable uh, advance of truth in, in Scotland, how did it take place? And here was his explanation. He said simply, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. And we could say the same thing about the Christians in Acts. They were not 
special people in and of themselves, right? They did not have some special gifts and talents that really set them apart to do great things. I mean, Peter was hardly an impressive person when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ before the servant girl. This is not an impressive person at all. But what Acts is about is how God advances his gospel through simple people, ordinary people, by the empowering of his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is given by the ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Now today we begin the significant section of Acts which details the ministry of Stephen. It was a very short ministry, but a very effective ministry. God did amazing things through Stephen And yet it did not last very long. He died for Christ. He died faithfully for his Lord, as we will see in the next chapter. Stephen holds the distinguished place as the first person who died for the Lord Jesus Christ since Jesus' ascension. Uh, He became, in the history of the church, the very first martyr, as we call him. Of course, the word martyr originally meant simply a witness, one who bore witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it it came to have this technical sense of one who dies for Christ. And the reason that 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 happened is that for so many Christians, to bear witness meant that they would also sometimes have to die for him. And so to be a martyr then meant to witness unto the point of death for Jesus. Now, Stephen's ministry, I think, reminds us of a few important truths that we find throughout Acts. Two in particular that I want to highlight. The first is that Stephen reminds us that the ability of Christians to bear witness to Jesus Christ in the face of opposition comes by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And secondly, it reminds us that so great is the power of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit can enable us to willingly and even joyfully give up our lives for Christ. Giving up our lives doesn't always mean dying immediately, uh, did for Stephen, but there's different ways in which we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of Christ, and it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to do what we otherwise could not do naturally. God's grace is sufficient to equip all of us, to equip you to do his will in whatever he's called you to do. So Stephen has become a a prototype of Christian faithfulness, an example of Christian witness. We, We often sing the hymn, the Son of God goes forth to war. And in that hymn, Stephen is mentioned. His name is not used, but it's a reference to Stephen. You remember the verse that says this, That martyr first, whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save. Like him with pardon on his tongue, in midst of mortal pain, he prayed for them that did the wrong, who follows in his train. And so he is an example. He's an example of faith for us. He's an example of love for Christ. He's an example of love for others that is set forth. And I do believe that God used Stephen's witness in in particular in the life of Paul. Paul, who had a hand in killing Stephen, would later repent and come to be such a faithful witness himself. And I imagine that the the life of Stephen uh, loomed large in the memory of Paul. And it should be in our memory as well. 
So, how do we explain this ministry? Well, as I already said, it is the Holy Spirit of God that empowered Stephen to do these things. And you remember the organizing verse of Acts. What is the organizing verse? Well, it's Acts 1, verse 8. It is sort of the thematic verse for the whole book. What is Acts about? Well, Acts 1, 8 tells us. Jesus said to his disciples right before he ascended, He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so it was that Stephen was given power. He was given the Holy Spirit and then bore witness in Jerusalem. And he would then, of course, be the seed that would then scatter the gospel elsewhere into those new regions. And so as we look at this passage, how do we bring this to application? You might think, well, I don't face the circumstances normally that Stephen faced here. Maybe, maybe some of us do face some very fearful times where we're uh, before people that hate Christ and we have to speak on behalf of Christ. We're going to have opportunity to do that. Uh, but all of us should earnestly desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We should desire to be those that are equipped to do the will of God in whatever circumstance and context we are faced, we are facing. That includes all of us, men, women, children. All of us need the equipping ministry of the Holy Spirit to do the will of Christ. And that is how I want to, to bring this to application. So as we look at Stephen, we're going to see a, a remarkable ministry that he exercised. And let's review for a moment who Stephen was. Stephen was one of the seven men in Acts 6 that were set apart for the mercy ministry of the church, which we looked at last week. He was called to be a a faithful administrator of this mercy ministry and to resolve a conflict that had occurred. There was a conflict between the Hebrew and the Hellenist Uh, Christians uh, and their widows were concerned that they were being neglected. The the Greek-speaking widows were concerned that they were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and potentially other provision. And Stephen was one of these seven men that was appointed and set apart by the laying on of hands to care for this aspect of the church's ministry. Uh, interestingly, though, we don't see much of that part of his ministry highlighted as to what actually happened. Instead, he becomes this preacher, this proclaimer of the word of God. He does miracles, much like the apostles. And it is interesting to me that the longest sermon in the book of Acts is not by one of the apostles. Uh, I mean, the Acts of the Apostles, you'd think, well, certainly the longest sermons have to be from the Apostles, but it's not. Stephen's sermon is the longest by word count of any person's message in the entire book. Now, what we talked about last time is, is uh, Stephen a deacon, is, and is Philip and the other seven, are they deacons in the technical sense? And I suggested that we don't know for sure whether they were technically deacons. They're not given that title, but they certainly do things that are like deacons, and I think they function as a sort of prototype for the diaconate. But it's interesting to me that two of these men have a ministry of proclaiming the word of God. 
Stephen's is most highlighted, but Philip is called the evangelist in Acts 21. He was gifted in the work of evangelism and proclaiming the gospel to others and sharing it. And this reminds us that the ministry of the word, the proclamation of the word, the sharing of the gospel was never meant to be limited to just the pastor teachers of the church. Uh, The whole promise of Pentecost was that the spirit of God would be poured out on all of God's people, not just the select few that could speak forth the word of God, but that all of God's people, including um, uh, young women and children, would be included in that list of those who would speak forth the truth of God. And so part of the ministry of the new covenant is a much greater and broader ministry of the word that includes all of us in speaking the truth of God. And so while it is true that God sets apart uh, men to the office of preaching and teaching, Let us never wrongly get the impression that speaking the word of God is meant to be limited to the ministry of pastors and teachers. We are all called to speak forth the truth of God's word. Now let's read about the powerful ministry of Stephen in verse 8 once again. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen here was much like the apostles. He worked many signs and wonders uh, among the people, which we we know from the rest of Acts probably included uh, healing people, first of all, but also delivering them from demonic oppression. That tends to be the two common themes that occur when signs and wonders are mentioned in Acts, which is, of course, what Jesus did, right? He healed people, and he set them free from the power of the evil one. And this tells us, of course, that the work of the miraculous, the working of signs and wonders, was not limited to only the apostles. It's certainly mostly associated with the apostles, but it is not limited to them. Now, Stephen is able to do this as well as to speak forth the word of God because he is a man that is full of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that he's full of the Holy Spirit? Well, our particular passage doesn't actually say that phrase, but the surrounding text does. So if you look back at Acts 6, verse 3, he was chosen as one of the seven for the express reason that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. You had to be a man full of the Spirit to be qualified to serve as one of the seven and to oversee that important ministry of the church. How else do we know that he's full of the Spirit? Well, you see Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 56. This is right as Stephen is being murdered, uh, stoned to death, and looking up into heaven. What does it say in Acts 7, verse 55? But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And and he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so this phrase, the the full of the Holy Spirit or filled with the Spirit, I, I want to give a great deal of attention to that phrase and its meaning today as we look at our passage because it really brings before us something that is quite important in the Christian life. 
I would say that Luke and Acts mention this phrase more than anywhere else in the Bible. Luke is particularly fond of speaking of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Spirit in his ministry, just as we sang in the hymn earlier. And we are filled with the Spirit as well. So what does this Spirit filling look like? What does it mean for us in the Christian life? Well, and... As we look at the ministry of Stephen and that the power and the boldness and the love, there are times where I look at Stephen's ministry and I, I say, I don't know if I feel very Stephen-like. I don't know if you can relate to that. Do you feel Stephen-like from time to time? There are times where I don't feel that way. Uh, I can be fearful. I, I can, and I can lack love. Uh, I, I could respond unlike Stephen, who is forgiving those that are killing him, and I could get mad at somebody that's doing far less to me uh, than killing me. And so Stephen is, of course, a very remarkable example of spirit-filling. And while our ministry and our Christian life is not going to look exactly like Stephen's, I do believe that there are principles here for us that are part of our Christian life, that we also are called to walk in. So let us give some attention to this matter of the filling of the Spirit and the implications of that Spirit filling for each of us. So let's review a few things as it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. The first thing that I want to make clear is that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is a gift that is given to every single true Christian. Every Christian that is truly a Christian, one who has the the gift of saving faith and repentance, one who has turned to Christ and has experienced the new birth, they will have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We, We call this essential reality, based on Scripture, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And you may be familiar with groups of Christians that say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for something far later, some second experience. But I would argue that based on the testimony of Scripture, uh, especially the the verses I have in your notes, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is descriptive of a reality that every true Christian has. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we were all baptized into one spirit. Uh, No exceptions. Uh, This is a reality for all of us. And I don't have this as much in my notes, but I feel uh, compelled to remind all of us as it relates to the ministry of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit's ministry is never independent of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. I am I, compelled to say that so that we do not just think of the Holy Spirit as this independent entity that exists apart from what Jesus Christ does to save us. Part of the very gift of his salvation is to grant us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that means that if you do not have the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not experienced the new birth, then you will know nothing of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a personal way. It will not be a reality for you. You will not have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Romans 8, verse 9, Paul says that he who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. And so this is then a reminder for us that the Spirit's 
indwelling presence within each of us can only happen if we have turned to the Lord Jesus in faith and received his redeeming, saving gift of salvation. There's no other way to have the Holy Spirit of God. Now, secondly, as we think about what follows then from the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that every Christian has, how does this filling of the Holy Spirit work in the life of Stephen and the life of others in Scripture and in our lives as well? Well, we are actually commanded in Scripture to be filled with the Spirit. It's important to remember that. We are commanded to seek the filling of of the Holy Spirit. We find that in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writing to the church of Christ, writing to God's people, those that do have the Spirit of God, as we see from Ephesians 1 through 3, he says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit as a present imperative for God's people. Be filled with the Spirit. Well, I would suggest that as we look at the whole teaching of Scripture, that the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that is not simply an on-off switch, like a, a none or, or fully on, but rather something that can be experienced in varying measures in the Christian life and something that God can t- continue to bless us and grow us in. It is something that God does continually in his people. Now, what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, this word full, we might think of a, a cup that's, that's full of, of something, like full of water, uh, as a simple picture for us. And the, the language of full of something is actually found throughout Scripture, applied to many different things. You'll, you'll read of people being full of deceit, or full of envy, or full of rage. Well, In that context, to be full of those things means that you are controlled or dominated by that thing. It is what is characterizing you. It is what is controlling you. So you could be full of very bad things. But then in contrast, to be full of the Holy Spirit is to be so controlled and dominated and led and directed by the Spirit of God that all of the the beautiful realities of the Spirit's character come out in us. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is, is God himself. He, he brings forth within us his very character. The very character of God uh, becomes uh, manifest in us in terms of these uh, characteristics. Not every divine characteristic, of course, but the fruit of the Spirit being the most obvious example uh, Love, joy, peace, etc. So kids, this is the first point in your notes concerning the filling of the Spirit. Number one. Number one, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, and led by the Spirit to do God's will. This is what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we look at Stephen's ministry, we see that the filling of the Spirit was especially equipping him to speak forth the truth to a very hostile audience. But the reality is that the Spirit's filling equips us to do anything in the Christian life that we're called to do. 
not just speaking for Christ, that's an important one, but any of the commands of Scripture that were given, if we are going to do those uh, and be able to do those, we need the Spirit's presence and filling within us. Just turn to any portion of the New Testament where we're given exhortations like Ephesians 4 and 5, walk worthy of your calling, love the body of Christ, forgive one another, bear with one another, forsake anger and wrath, speak the truth, always edify, walk in love as Christ loved us. How do you do any of that? These things would be impossible for us without the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. Do any of these commands feel difficult? Does it feel difficult to forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you? You need the ministry and the filling of the Holy Spirit to do these things. But there is something rather odd about the imperative in Ephesians 5 when it says be filled with the Spirit. Let's read part of it, Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, which Paul gives some description of what the Spirit filling looks like in the life of the church. It says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. This gives us some description then of what it would look like, what it will look like as we are more and more filled with the Spirit. It's going to be a life of gratitude and praise to God and uh, humble submission to one another, amongst other things. But this is an interesting imperative, and you know why it's interesting is because it is a passive imperative. That is to say, you're commanded to do something in which you are passive. How does that work? Be filled with the Spirit. Not fill yourself with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. How do you fulfill a passive command? Well, one of the ways that we seek out these sort of passive imperatives is through prayer, no doubt. It is through prayer that we seek the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ask God to pour out His Holy Spirit in greater measure upon us and to equip us every day to do His will to be led by the Spirit, to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. This is a very practical reality for us day to day, brothers and sisters, that we need the Spirit's ministry in our lives. I I often pray for this in numerous situations I face. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak. Certainly I pray for that in the context of sharing the word with you all. But I need it in my home. I need it when I talk to my children. I need it when I speak to my wife. I need it when I speak to any of you uh, to be led by the Spirit in what I say. If I go into a a conversation full of frustration or anger or envy and I'm, I'm guided by fleshly motivations, I'm not going to speak or act very well. But when I'm led by the Spirit of God, or when any of us are led by the Spirit of God, we do so much better because God is empowering us to do what would otherwise not happen in our lives. And kids, this is just as much a need for each of you as you have your uh, relationship with your friends and with your brothers and sisters. 
you, you need the Holy Spirit to equip you for, for, with words of kindness and love for others rather than what might naturally come out, which would not be so loving. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, our helper, our counselor, our guide in the Christian life. And so we see that is what enabled Stephen to speak and act with such power in his ministry. Now let's look at verses 9 through 10. We see his words, the the powerful words that he spoke here in verses 9 through 10. There arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now briefly, I want to explain the background of what uh, Luke is talking about here. He talks about this synagogue of the freedmen. We might be wondering, who are those people? Uh, And uh, the historical records tell us that there were a group of Jews that had been captured by the Roman general Pompey in about 63 BC, and they had been exiled to Rome for many years. They built a synagogue and a community there, but eventually they were freed. Uh, They were freed from their captivity, and hence they were called the freedmen. And they eventually went back from Rome, back to Jerusalem, and they had built a synagogue there, which included people of different nationalities, it appears. And it was this group of Jews that were not in agreement with what Stephen was saying. There was an argument taking place between these Jews and between Stephen as he spoke. And we read in the text that Stephen was disputing. And the word disputing may have the wrong sense for us. It's not a, I don't believe for Stephen it was some sort of a, Uh, yelling match where he was yelling and name-calling. We sometimes think of like a quarrel or a fight of some kind. But knowing that Stephen is led by the Holy Spirit in his words, Stephen is setting forth truth. Now, maybe they were name-calling. I don't know. Maybe there was name-calling and yelling back at him. But because he is guided by the Spirit of God, he is a man that is speaking forth truth. He is arguing from the Scriptures, as we'll see in Acts 7, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one appointed to save his people. And so that's what Stephen was doing. And so powerful were Stephen's words that they were not able to resist what he was saying. They they had no argument. You see that the Holy Spirit enables us to set forth the truth with clarity in such a way that people cannot refute what we're saying. They have no argument back for the truth that we've set forth. This was what Jesus promised for his people and his disciples back in Luke 21. He says, you're going to face opposition. You're going to be brought before these rulers. And Jesus said, you don't even have to meditate beforehand on what you're going to say. He says, you don't need to have a big speech written out. You don't need to have these five sheets of paper where you have all your, your, your notes before you. He says, I'm going to give you the spirit of God so that you will know what to say. Luke 21, 14 through 16, Jesus says, Settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. We see this is exactly what's happening in the life of Stephen. Stephen. 
And so what a gift it is that we are given the Holy Spirit of God that can equip us to know what to say. Uh, we often worry about these kinds of circumstances. Well, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? And, and while there's a place for making sure that we are learning of the truth of God and we're able to communicate it clearly, we are not to be fearful about these situations. We are to ask for the Spirit's equipping and help in what we are going to say in response. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, the Holy Spirit equips us with the words we need when people oppose us and our faith in Christ. So Stephen has spoken the truth. They cannot contradict him. They can't resist what he's saying. They have no answer. Now, what should they do? Well, they should receive Jesus. They should repent of their sins and trust in Christ. That should have been what happened. But of course, that's not what happened because they hated the message. They did not have ears to hear. What do you do when you don't have truth on your side? What do you do when you have no response and no argument against something that you hate? Well, you have to resort to the weapons of the evil one. And that's exactly what they did. And so now we turn to the, this, this other part of the passage where we see the negative response to the Spirit's ministry in Stephen. We see the ugly side of unbelief and hatred in these people that oppose Stephen. And so if you can't, if you don't want to receive the truth and you don't have truth on your side, then you only have one other option open to you, and that is to lie, to speak untruth to bear false witness. And that's what these men did in verses 11 through 12. Listen to how they describe Stephen before this court that could rule about Stephen's alleged crimes. Verse 11, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. We need to understand how weighty a charge this was. In our modern day, blasphemy is not only uh, tolerated and not prosecuted, but almost celebrated. So we don't really understand how significant of a charge it was to say that Stephen was speaking blasphemy. In Stephen's time and, his, and in his context, blasphemy, if found guilty, was a charge that led to the death penalty. To blaspheme against the name of God or God's truth in the context of the nation of Israel was a capital crime, as Leviticus 24 says. So this matter of bearing false witness in the case of these men, it was a very serious matter. They were charging Stephen with a death penalty level crime. And they were doing so as false witnesses. They were not faithfully representing what Stephen was saying. And you know that the law of God required that those who bore false witness in such a way that somebody could be found guilty of the death penalty, if you were found to be a false witness of that, you would face the same penalty yourself. This was also a very serious matter for these persecutors. Now we're reminded in this matter, we're reminded in the case of Stephen that to be a Christian... 
To be a disciple of Christ, you should expect to be slandered and maligned and misrepresented. It is to be expected. Jesus said that in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when men say all kinds of evil falsely for my sake. Just as basic as any of the other Beatitudes of being poor in spirit and being merciful and being a peacemaker is to be maligned and slandered and misrepresented. This is par for the course as a Christian. So kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, our Lord Jesus said that if we are faithful to him, we can expect that others will lie about us and what we believe. Now this is a hard thing, I think. If you've experienced at any time in your life people misrepresenting your words or your beliefs or your actions. It is a very hard thing to experience, especially when it's done out of malicious intent to harm you or harm your reputation. You feel such a sense of injustice. Have you felt that before? That sense of injustice when somebody has taken your words and they have misconstrued them to mean something you never intended them to mean. And you can feel very wronged by it. You you sense that the harm that can come when there is a misrepresentation. And words can do great harm. There's, there's false witness that can destroy relationships. It can divide churches. It can send people to jail that are not guilty of anything. False witness is a very serious matter in the eyes of God. And the reason that false witness is such an important matter to our God is because our God is a God of truth. God never and cannot speak lies. It is Satan who is the father of lies. Satan as the opposer of God. Satan as the antithesis of all that is good and right and true is the father of all that is not true. And that means that any time you or I, if we take up the fleshly weapon of false witness, we, to that degree, ally ourselves with the father of lies And that is something, of course, as Christians, we should have absolutely nothing to do with. And so this was a very harmful thing in the case of Stephen. This false witness would lead to his death and his execution. I don't don't think that the court did a... They didn't exactly do a formal ruling on it. It was sort of a mob killing, as we will see. But it was nevertheless what energized this crowd to kill Stephen. Of course, they didn't like the true parts of what he was saying either, so there's that as well. Now let's look at the the words that were spoken about him in verses 13 and 15. It says, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So they're bearing false witness. That's what Luke tells us here. Now what part of these charges are true and what part is false? The tricky thing about false accusations is that sometimes they have an element of truth in them. But you've you've perhaps noticed that even when somebody presents your words or actions, if they change just subtly, just a few parts of what you said or did, 
it can dramatically alter what, what that really means. Every detail counts. It's very important as being those that are truth tellers that we get the details right, that we speak the truth. We are commanded in the scriptures not to bear false witness as these men did. But keeping the ninth commandment perfectly is extremely difficult and technically impossible in our fallen state. And by, by that by impossible, I mean perfectly keeping it at every point, right? We, we, we stumble in many things, James says. And yet that is to be our aim, is to speak the truth always and fully and faithfully. We are commanded every time that we speak of others to speak truthfully, to represent faithfully who they are and what they said or what they did when we are giving witness Our larger catechism uh, is an excellent tool in this regard. It has this very extensive list on the ninth commandment, on what the sins are that are forbidden by the ninth commandment and what that commandment requires of us. And to be honest, it is probably the two most, some of the most painful questions to read in the larger catechism. I don't know if you've done it uh, before or recently, but it is painful to read because it is so extensive in its scope that you might be thinking of events within the last weeks where you realize, oh, I did not fully keep that commandment. I'm not going to read the entire questions because they're extremely long, but I'm just going to read part of question 145 because I highlighted the portions that especially relate to what these men were doing to Stephen. It's in the bottom of your notes, I believe. It says, what are the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment? The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, like in a court, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses. They did that. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, misconstructing intentions, words and actions, raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, evil suspicion, and and on the list goes from there. And so that's what they were doing. They were breaking the ninth commandment. They were committing a very serious crime in this action against Stephen. And they were bringing these charges against him. And so I do want to ask for a moment, what, what was true and not true about these charges? So let's look at those for just a moment. Charge one, as I see it, is that they said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Well, I can clearly say that this was a totally false and baseless charge. Stephen rightly and faithfully represented the truth of God concerning the temple and the law, as we will see in his sermon. He did not blaspheme against God. He was faithfully representing the truth of God. We'll see that in his sermon next, next week. Charge number two. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Well, that is true. <laughs> Jesus did say he was going to destroy the temple. Now, there's two senses in which that's the case. Jesus, on one occasion, talked about the temple of his body. He wasn't actually, on that occasion, talking about the physical temple. He was saying, you're going to destroy this temple, my body, and I will raise that up on the third day, referring to his resurrection, and they missed that. And they also used that against Jesus in his trial of containing false witnesses. 
But elsewhere, privately to the disciples, Jesus had spoken about the destruction of the temple that was going to take place. In Luke 23 and in uh, Matthew 24, he mentions that there was coming a day where the temple was going to be destroyed, and perhaps his teaching about that had spread elsewhere. So that was true. Jesus was going to destroy the temple, not because Jesus was against the truth of God, but because he was the temple. And the new temple of God, the church of Christ, fulfilled what that temple was pointing forward to. And then the third charge is that he was seeking to change the customs which Moses delivered to us. I imagine that this was probably a mixture of true and false and this charge. What may have been true was that Stephen was talking about the changes to the rituals of the law that had come with the new covenant. Stephen was speaking of those things. But on the other hand, I would suggest that it's likely that the Jews had a whole lot of tradition in mind that was not part of the law of Moses and was based upon their misunderstanding. Now, as we look at all of this, it reminds us again that being misrepresented, being slandered, not getting a fair and accurate representation is going to be a reality for us in the Christian life. And Jesus pronounces a blessing that when we faithfully represent him and we are misrepresented, we are blessed as we do so. We see so many examples of misrepresentation of the Christian message just like Stephen experienced in his day. Our secular culture, which is so uh, ignorant of the truth of God, is constantly misrepresenting what the Christian faith means and what Christians actually believe. And so it's good at any time you hear those things out in the world around you to say, maybe I should talk to an actual Christian and ask them what they think of that. That would bring a lot more clarity than than listening to those that reject the truth of God. American culture uh, will often, they'll, they'll, they'll run to some biblical passage that they find the most offensive to their fleshly minds, and they'll say, see what this Bible says that, that these Christians follow? How could you ever receive such a thing? They look at some Old Testament law that strikes them as unjust, and they say, how could we use the Bible as a source of truth or, or morality in, in our modern day? as if they are in any way a standard of what is true and right. Now, why is it that we should expect to be misunderstood and misrepresented? Why is that basic to bearing witness for Christ and basic to being a Christian, that you're going to get misrepresented? It's very frustrating to us that we have to go through that at times. We, we would much rather be faithfully represented, right? All of us desire that our words are rightly expressed and by others. Why is it that this is basic to the Christian life? It's, the reason it is basic to the Christian life as a reality is that you are opposing Satan, the father of lies. If you are for Christ, you are against Satan and the world. And what are the tools that the Satan and the world use? They use lies. So you will be lied about. You will be misrepresented. People misrepresent other people not just because they have a misunderstanding. Sometimes that's the case. 
People will misrepresent what you believe because it is in their interest to misrepresent what you believe. People have sinful motivations driving them to express what we believe as Christians in the most horrific and inaccurate terms that they could find to make it look as awful as possible to other people around them. Of course, to a fleshly mind, the truth of the gospel is not attractive in any way at all unless the Holy Spirit brings an awakening and conviction to the conscience. But in all of this, whenever we face this onslaught of fleshly weapons, whenever we face the the slander, the misrepresentation, we of course do do not respond in the same way, but we respond with the truth that God has entrusted to us. And that's exactly what Stephen did, as we'll see in his sermon. Well, as we bring, bring this message to a close, I do want to look at just the one more detail that's given in our text in verse 15, because it is a significant detail as Stephen is about to begin his, uh, his sermon or his message to these people. It says in verse 15, all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Why are we given this detail? Imagine you're Stephen. You're, you're Stephen and you're, you're being accused of things that could lead to your death. Is it possible that you would respond with frustration or anger or malice at the people that are speaking to you or even despair and hopelessness? Is it possible that you could respond any of those ways to what you're facing? But that's not what Stephen did. Stephen does not have anger on his face. He doesn't have malice on his face. He doesn't have hopelessness on his face in these circumstances. Stephen has the face of a shining angel. Why is, why is Stephen shining like this? Well, Stephen is reflecting visibly the glory of God to these people. This is a, another manifestation of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in Stephen's ministry. Stephen is so full of the Holy Spirit that he's not fearing those people that are right before him that can kill him. His eyes are set on things that are above. He is focused upon the glory of God, and it will be the case when he comes to die at the end of the chapter 7 that he doesn't look at all the stones getting thrown at him. He, he looks to heaven and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. And so if there's anything that, that represents the, the power of God in Stephen's ministry, this is a, a very powerful uh, representation of that because it is so unnatural. You know, it's, None of us have the face of an angel naturally to reflect such glory, but this is what the Spirit of God had done. And it is very ironic, I think, that Stephen was accused of blaspheming Moses. It's ironic because Moses is the other figure in Scripture that came down from the mountain with his face shining with the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses came down and his face was so illuminated by the radiant glory of God that he had to wear a veil so that people could look at him. Much like Stephen here, his face is shining 
I wonder if Paul thought of this event which he was present for when he wrote about that shining of the glory of God on our faces in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 through 18. Paul wrote, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, not like the veil of Moses, we all with unveiled face as in a mirror, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Maybe uh, Stephen's actual physical manifestation of that glory became something of the inspiration for what Paul was speaking of here. And so all of this is a representation for us of the filling of the Spirit in Stephen's ministry, empowering him to not respond with anger and frustration and, or despair, but to respond in love to those that were harming him. He, he was the one that asked God to forgive those that were killing him. You think it's hard to forgive somebody that's offended you? Ratchet it up a few notches. Somebody's killing you. How hard is it to forgive them? How hard is it to ask for God's forgiveness as he does? And so in like manner, when we're facing a difficult situation, when we're facing opposition, when we might feel fearful, we might sense despair, what the Spirit of God can equip us to do is to be absolutely unshaken when we face that. And to be like Stephen, beholding the glory of God, beholding the bigness and greatness and the power of God, and then all of the other things that we're facing utterly pale in comparison to that. And so, brothers and sisters, what this all points us to is that we earnestly desire the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can grow in doing the will of God. We can grow in bearing witness to the truth of God as Stephen did. And let us remember that the gift of the Holy Spirit and the good things that he brings forth is for all of us. It's not for the select few. As Paul says in 2 Timothy verse one, uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. All of us, not just Timothy, not just Stephen, he has given us that spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And so we can close in prayer asking that the Spirit's work would be perfected in us, bringing forth power, love, and a sound mind, and we would be, we would be equipped to do what Jesus has given us to do. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great works of power and the sending forth of your Holy Spirit to your people. And as we consider the ministry of Stephen today, we ask that you would equip us to do your will, that each of us in our callings would be led by your Spirit, we would be filled by your Spirit, And we would have that spirit of power and love and a sound mind that Stephen had. We ask that you would bring forth these good things within us as your people. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.